Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas's Classical Education Graduate Program. With a dedicated faculty and staff drawing on extensive experience in the classical tradition, the Classical Education Graduate Program benefits from the strength of the university's nationally recognized core curriculum, which embodies the UD's dedication to the pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue as the proper and primary ends of education. The Classical Education Graduate Program combines the ethos of this core curriculum with a concentration on the theory and practice of classical education, bringing these to the working and aspiring classical teachers, school administrators, and home educators around the country. Earn a classical teaching certificate, a Master of Humanities degree, or a Master of Arts degree in classical education. With an extensive array of online courses, the program is designed to meet the schedules of busy classroom and homeschool teachers. In addition, for a limited time, the Classical Education Program at the University of Dallas has scholarships available that can reduce the cost of the program by up to 90%. That's 90, 90%. Don't miss out on this opportunity today. Visit udallas.edu slash classical ed to start your application. Again, that is udallas.edu slash classical ed. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode five, three words. Today's proverb is more than three words, but maybe boils down to three words. It is from Petrarch, and I'll read it twice. To be able to say how much you love is to love but little. Once more from Petrarch. To be able to say how much you love is to love but little. 
It strikes me as a philosophical claim, but a practical claim as well. Anyone who claims that the ability to say how much you love is to love but little must have tried. And of course, Petrarch tried to say how much he loved. It seems also that Petrarch must have observed others. This, of course, is how proverbial wisdom comes to be. It's an observation of others and an observation of yourself as well. Proverbial wisdom is an ability to see all the things that you share in common with other people that you have perhaps never spoken of, never even mentioned. To be able to say how much you love is to love but little. Let me also begin by saying I don't believe that this is a sentiment expressed by a young and immature poet or a young and immature lover. This seems more like the wisdom of middle age because were this a quotation from a young man, it would be different. As Aristotle says in his rhetoric, young people overdo everything. And so I suspect that if this were a young man's quote, he would say, to be able to say how much you love is to love none at all. That's the more overdone version. That's the more extreme version. And if you've read young writing, if you've read high school writing, you know that young people have a, a tendency to make extreme every philosophical claim that they want to argue. So... Petrarch is willing to say that an affable love, a love that can be spoken, is real but small. And so the quote also sets on the line the difference between little love and great love, as opposed to a distinction between love and hate. The person who says this, the sentiment of the quotation, to be able to say how much you love is to love but little, has discovered the limitation of words and has been disappointed by words. Having tried to express the fullness of his love many times and having been left with a sense of incompletion, Petrarch is well-experienced in the limitations of human language, or at least the limitations of the human intellect. There's a great passage towards the end of C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, where he does a remarkable job describing the frustration that attends an inability to say what you mean. And I'd like to read just a short passage from the end of Till We Have Faces. And this is, I say, the last third of the book. Maybe even the last quarter. Here's the quote. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less, or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. 
Orwell comments, a glib saying, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech, which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer, till that word can be dug out of us. Why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? Now, what Orwell's describing here, this word that lays at the center of your soul, perhaps this is love. Perhaps she's referring to the great love of your life, regardless of what it is. Love for your parents, love for your children, love for your spouse, love for yourself. Maybe that's the word that lays at the center of your soul and grounds your soul. And that's the very thing that's very hard to express. I have, over the last five years, published close to half a million words in one form or another. And... I commonly get to the end of an article or a lecture or a podcast and feel I haven't said all that there is to say. There is more. It could be said better. It could be refined. I could give one more perusal to all of my vocabulary choices, reconsider all my verbs, and maybe get something closer to what I mean. But I also know that you could spend your whole life doing that. And Orwell knows that. Lewis knows that. That the ability to say exactly what you mean is this rare, once-in-a-lifetime, maybe even eschatological moment. Perhaps the last judgment comes only when we have that ability to ask God for whatever it is that we really want. What is the love that you need fulfilled? There's a great movie, came out in the 1980s, Tarkovsky movie called Stalker, about a number of men who are traveling to this spot in the middle of a kind of urban jungle, has been largely abandoned, in search of a room. And for those who enter this hard-to-find room, they will receive whatever it is they ask for. And the whole story, the whole film, leads them on this long, meandering course, very dangerous, through this wasteland, this urban wasteland, to find the room. And there's this mysterious figure who guides them. And when they finally get to the room, what they discover is that the room doesn't so much have genie-like powers to give you whatever you want or whatever you ask for, but that those who enter the room will receive back what it is that they truly and actually want, this word that has lain at the center of your soul for years, as Orwell puts it. And when they hear that, the men become very terrified to enter the room because they're worried that at the very center of their soul is a word or a desire for something horrific. Their egos might ask for something noble, something splendid, but they all have this immediate sense 
that what they really want is something beyond their own comprehension and that it might be quite terrifying. There's an oddity I find in the third canticle of the comedy, Paradiso, as Dante is journeying higher and higher and higher through the cosmos. He recognizes that words have begun to fail him. The closer Dante gets to God, the more often he describes things as indescribable. And as a writing teacher, if I ever had a junior poet or a junior storyteller describe a woman's beauty, a flower, anything as indescribable, I put a big cross uh, over it, a big line through it and say, no, you're the poet. Indescribable is just your failure to do your job. Dante, of course, is a great poet. And as he gets closer to God, he keeps saying that all the spectacles of glory are indescribable or beyond words. Now, as opposed to accusing Dante of laziness, I think that Dante's use of the word indescribable is actually more of a technical term as he rises than it is a laziness or failure to employ the right words. Because God is love. And the closer Dante gets to love, or the closer he gets to the fountain of all things, the more words seem to limit reality as opposed to open them up. And so the proper posture towards the God who is love is silence. That only when a man is silent can he fully receive the love of God. Because words always limit us. To name a thing is to limit it. It's to put a fence around it. And this is true whether we're defining an object or defining a concept. Words are fences. Words are frames. Words narrow things. Refine things. Words box things up. Words refuse to allow reality to spill away from us like marbles. Words collect reality and order reality. But because words narrow and fence and limit, as Dante gets closer to the source of all reality, speaking doesn't make sense because more reality is being opened up to Dante, and to speak of it would be to narrow it. And so the proper posture is silence. And when Dante finally receives the beatific vision, he's not talking. He's awestruck. Love is beyond words, or great love is beyond words. This might also be because love is beyond reason. I don't mean love is irrational. But love is beyond reason. God is love. Reason is human. Love is divine. Reason 
slowly yields to love as natural things must yield to supernatural things. Petrarch is also suggesting here to be able to say how much you love is to love but little. That love has this apophatic quality to it. Now, I suspect most of you know what apophatic theology is. Apophatic theology is negative theology. Theology which is more concerned with revealing the limitations of the human intellect than defining and narrowing God. The latter kind of theology is cataphatic theology. An apophatic claim about God, and scripture is filled with both, an apophatic claim about God might be, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's to describe God in his essence, beyond human comprehension, really. Whereas a cataphatic claim might be, God dwells between the wings of the cherubim. And these are contradictory claims only if we fail to recognize that they are in, so to speak, a different language from one another. Uh, God does not dwell in temples made by hands is to attempt to describe the divine nature according to the divine intellect. Whereas whenever we experience God, we experience him in time, and thus he appears subject to time. And so we might say, well, I know where God is. He's between the wings of the cherubim. He's spatially located there, there and not somewhere else. Cataphatically speaking, we might say God is love. Apophatically, we might say God is beyond love. God is beyond our comprehension of love. Our comprehension of love narrows and defines, whereas the God who is at all times, in all places, filling all things, cannot be properly limited. He cannot be justly limited. And so God is love is not an unfitting claim. Obviously, this is the way that Scripture speaks it. But we have to recognize not the limitations of Scripture, so to speak, as the limitations of our own minds, limitations of language. God is the source of all language. The second person of the Godhead is the, the word. And all words are derived from him. Thus, to put a word to the word is redundant or illogical. God is love, and love is divine, which is not to say that love is irrational, although love can often appear to be irrational, beyond reason, beyond words, beyond logic, beyond enthymemes, although maybe not beyond examples. Chesterton brings this up in his biography of St. Francis of Assisi. That Francis was involved in this divine romance. And all of the things that Francis did out of a love for God seem odd to modern men who would not consider the same acts odd when performed by a man for the glory or honor or wooing of a woman. 
So I know Petrarch's reputation, of course, and what he's known for, to be able to say how much you love is to love but little. We could compare this statement or judge it or reconcile it to romantic love, but it might also be interesting to square it with the love of God, a non-romantic love, so to speak. Because, as Chesterton insists of St. Francis, there are many ways in which romance is a kind of higher logic, higher rationale, that explains great piety. One of the things about great love, whether we're talking about God or the romantic love, um, of a man and a woman. One of the unusual qualities about great love is that great love invariably involves an oath. Maybe even great love of country, which also ends up involving an oath, at least for the, the soldier. Great love always involves an oath, and the taking of oaths makes any kind of love very difficult to explain. Oaths are beyond reason. And once love has been tied to an oath or supported by an oath, it becomes even more difficult to speak of because oaths have a way of overtaking reason, which is why modern men don't like oaths. Modern men don't like oaths because oaths are not purely rational. An oath is an authoritative word spoken out of the past. Modern men hate the past. I'll give you an example. Why do men fall in love with women? The reason men fall in love with women is maybe very different than the reason men stay in love with women. That's because an oath often becomes involved. A man is, I suppose, free to fall in love with a woman for whatever reason he likes. We could consider some of the most common reasons why men fall in love. She's beautiful. She's kind. She's good. She's pious. She's righteous. She's rich, if we want to be a little cynical. These are all common reasons men give for falling in love. Um, and these same sort of reasons, I suppose, are on the other side. Women fall in love with men because he's handsome, he's rich, he's kind, he's righteous, he's hardworking. And if you met someone who was engaged to be married and you'd never heard their story and you said, how did you fall in love. How did you meet? And they said, well, we were in the same classes in college. We had the same interests. We would get together and chat, and we believed all the same things. We loved the same things. She was very beautiful. She was kind. She was generous. She listened to me. And I fell in love, and now we're getting married. I don't think there's anything unusual about that story. Tale as old as time. Now, what that kind of love turns into, though, 
is marriage. And marriage involves the taking of an oath. And the marriage oath does something funny to love. The marriage oath turns all the reasons people fall in love inside out. Because it's fair to fall in love because someone is kind or righteous or beautiful. But when you're married, you don't stay in love for that reason. You might say that all the reasons that you decide to get married go out the window the moment you get married. Those can't be reasons anymore. For love, kindness, funniness, beauty, those are reasons for entering into love. But they're not very strong. They can't keep you in love, which is why you need an oath. So you might marry a woman because she's kind and beautiful, but the oath means that you stay married even if she's cruel and hideous. You have to say goodbye to reasons when you take an oath. Because an oath is more powerful than reason. And so Petrarch says, to be able to say how much you love is to love but little. And sometimes my students have asked me, how did you meet your wife? And I tell them. But when they ask, how did you know she was the one? never really knew she was the one. She became the one when I made an oath to her. Now, my wife still has all the qualities about her that made me love her in the first place. But my marriage to her and my oath to her means that those reasons for entering into the marriage are merely decorations on the marriage now. Because the marriage is founded on something deeper than reason, which is to say something deeper than words. If somebody asked me, why do you love your wife now? I could only offer one of two answers. If they asked me, why do I like her? I would say because she's beautiful and kind and because she cares for my children and six or eight dozen other reasons. If somebody said, why do you love your wife? There's only one of two answers I could give. One of which would be because I have sworn to God to do so. And the other reason would be, well, I don't know. I don't know why I love him. And I could praise her. And I could write poems extolling her virtue. But those don't really explain anymore. After more than a dozen years of marriage, those don't explain why I love her. Why I love her has been offered up on an altar, burned up, converted to smoke, ascended into the heavenly realm. 
as Lightheart describes somewhere. And so there's something always beyond words, beyond reason about my marriage. I don't want to, my marriage is not special though. I really imagine that what I'm suggesting here is going to prove familiar to a lot of married people. That words fail you when you want to describe not just your love for your spouse, but your spouse himself or herself. I think that there's something ultimately comforting about this. It's vexing when you're young, but it becomes a comfort when you're older. It becomes a comfort that you can't say how much you love. If you could limit it to words, if you could itemize it, if you could objectify it, then you could break it. But an ineffable love sits somewhere beyond where moth and rust destroy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.